Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show where we demonstrate that everything, simply everything, ideas, thoughts, emotions, objects, whatever it is, has its own history. Like pigeons, sharks, or elves. Or hay, flay, and play. Uh, or art, the fart, which we've done, and Jean-Paul Sartre. Uh, <laughs> it's one of my favourites. For, for Sartre, Sartre, Sartre thought that hell is other people. Did you know that? Which, which is quite topical, really, for what we're going to talk about today, as we will be following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Did you know, Sam? Did you know, or who knew, that the history of the bubble is in fact all about childhood innocence, despair, the French Revolution, feats of stamina, and, importantly for what we're going on to say later on, Ornamental hermits. Ah, or that the history of snow is all about tattoos, DNA, bacchanalian excess, the Boston Massacre, and cruelty to cats. Ah, uh, Dylan Actually, Thomas, his famous snowballing of cats at Christmas time in Wales. Did you know that our, our podcast on the history of cats is one of our most popular? I didn't, no. Uh, so, um, everyone, if you haven't listened to our podcast on the history yeah. of cats, you should do. It's, it's particularly good. But, uh, however, if you are cat lovers, uh, you may not love it. Throughout history, cats have been very mis badly mistreated. Yeah. Oh, it's no good. That is true. Um, the man's sitting opposite me, but he's not opposite me. He's the other side of town. He is the uh, isolated sniper of history. <laughs> it's <laughs> Professor Extraordinaire of Early Modern British History at Plymouth University. It's James Daybell. Hello, Hello Sam, across town. And the man sitting in a shed across town uh, from me is the chief medical officer of the past, the truly wonderful <laughs> historical adventurer, Dr. Sam Willis. I, I feel that you're you're looking after the health of the past, Sam. That's good. I like that. Yes. Um, I, I'm actually in, really enjoying sitting in my shed. But, um, usually James and I record in my shed. And one of the problems with the shed is that it's right next to a railway line. So we have to stop every eight minutes because trains go past. But there are no trains. <laughs> I thought for a moment you were going to say, I'm really enjoying sitting in my shed without you there. <laughs> All right. Oh. <laughs> Well, um, a, a cue yeah, to solitude. I, yeah, well, we are doing the history of solitude today, and I'm I am very uh, I'm very much on my own, and um, I feel I mean I live in the middle of a city, but I also feel very isolated now without all of these rumbling, lovely rumblings of yes. trains going past. Do you like Do you like solitude? I uh, to a certain extent, I can't function without it, and then if I have too much of it, I can't function. So right. it's a it's a it's a um uh, a a what's the word a razor wire. Yes. Is that a word? No, that's not quite a word. I'm trying to say. Um, what am I trying to say? <laughs> um, what, what are the? It, it's fairly precarious balance, James. Yes, that's a precarious it. balance. Yeah, I, 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 I. There is a distinction between loneliness um, and loneliness that is something that is, um, you know, something that that is fairly negative, um, and solitude. If we take a definition of loneliness, loneliness is seen as an enduring condition of emotional distress that arises when a person feels estranged from, misunderstood or rejected by others and or lacks appropriate social partners for desired activities, particular activities that provide a sense of social integration and opportunities for emotional intimacy. There's that, which is loneliness, and then there is solitude, which is 
being on one's own for periods of time. And I love being on my, I love being on my own in, in, in solitude to sort of just, just time to read and write and think. I think it's very important, but I'm also a very gregarious and outgoing, sociable kind of person. So like you, I can't be in my own company for too long without being among others. Yeah, um, that's true. That's true. I mean, and just before we sat down, I, I, I've been thinking about solitude and the various ways we could we could talk about it and why it's important. Um, so, guys, this is a part two of a podcast. If you haven't listened to our one on loneliness, please go and check check into that because we talk a lot about about loneliness there. Um, anyway, I've just I, I've got certain things I was going to talk about, but I just picked up a book. Um, just while I was waiting for you to get ready, but you already were ready, so we were sitting in silent <laughs> solitude for five minutes. We've got there. the video <laughs> off on the yeah. Zoom, and we were both being very polite and sort of thinking, yeah. ah, the other one is preparing. We mustn't disturb there while they're. I was, I was sitting here thinking about news. food. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, the uh, I just picked up a book. I my my study is is fairly chaotic, so I've got kind of piles of books everywhere. And I picked up one I haven't looked at for for six months called The First World War and a Hundred Objects by Gary Sheffield. Mm. Um, it was sent to me by the publishers to review. I reviewed it. It's fantastic. And I suddenly thought, oh, I bet there are some objects relating to the First World War which allow you to uh, investigate solitude, to be inspired to investigate Ooh. solitude. In what? And of course there are. Of course there are. Um, and in, there are tons, in fact. And what I've got here, I've got Hermann Goering's Fokker DV, D7, DV2, I don't know how you pronounce that. Um, so this is a, a single-seat fighter. Hmm. So you, th that's one way of looking at, at the experience of solitude, certainly in the First World War, all the people up in the sky on their own. Um, that's a wonderful example. Another one is the Red Baron's triplay. We've got a, a, a model of it here. But that made me think about um, personal submarines for individual people, X-crafts, and all of the different ways in which individuals in the First or the Second World War were given the technology to allow them to operate on their own in solitude and who had profound effects on the war. One of the key things, of course, is a sniper's rifle. Here's a wonderful image of a Mauser model G98 sniper rifle, the type used on the Western Front, very detailed picture with a, with a whole paragraph about it. But material culture and, and these kind of compendium books like this can be really inspirational. If you, if you approach something, it's basically what we do, James, isn't it, with our histories of the unexpected. If you, you come up with a topic, you're not quite sure how you're going to go about it. But then when you look at the sources, you, you, you look at your understanding of history, you're suddenly inspired to think about things in a different way. So you might look at the sniper's rifle and, um, and think about the whole business of sniping, but you might not consider it in terms of solitude. Hmm. But there we are. So um, looking at that, I've got, a, I've got a similar book on the Second World War, which I might well look at. But I, I do it, everyone. Think about the history of solitude. Go to your internet, go to your library books and, and see what comes up. Ooh. I bet something interesting does. I've got one for you. Um, a shoe. <laughs> a single shoe. A single shoe um, <laughs> that dates from the late 17th century. And it's in the wonderful Ashmolean Museum in Oxford. And it's a, sh it's a really extraordinary shoe. And it's a, a series of pieces of straps of leather that have been sort of mangled together and and formed into a shoe and it belongs to a hermit uh, a man called 
John Biggs, um, who is known as the Dinton Hermit. And this was a man who was fairly uh, prominent during the Civil War period or post-Civil War period, um, was part of that sort of group of people who was um, ex part of executing um, Charles I. And the man got into trouble and he, um, he went into exile. His employer was a, a man called Simon Maine, who was a member of the Long Parliament, uh, a magistrate, and one of the judges at the trial of Charles I. And um, Big was his, uh, was his clerk. And in the Restoration, um, Maine gets into trouble um, and was executed for regicide on the 13th of April 1661. And at this point, Big disappears, um, either either just to save his own life or basically because he saw um, the country falling apart. And he goes off to Buckinghamshire to a place called Dinton and he lives in a cave. And he's said to have lived off charity and, and sort of begging from people. And one of the things he begged for was gifts of leather. So bits of straps of leather. And he used this to patch together his boots and, and his clothing. Uh, so quite extraordinary. And there's a description of him in a, a little book called Remarkable Persons. Um, <laughs> it was a fantastic title for isn't a Isn't it? Um, we and, want to. Um, we were going to do a, a podcast on the history of vagueness. Yes. We suggested that last time, <laughs> which I'm really, really excited about. I want to do it next. But um, remarkable persons. I, I love vague titles so, in literary history. <laughs> John Big, uh, a remarkable person, the Dinton Hermit. John Big, the Dinton Hermit, baptized 22nd of April, 1629, buried the 4th of April, 1696. Um, Brown Willis gives the particulars of this man out of a letter to, written to him by Thomas Hearn, the antiquarian, dated Oxon, February the 12th, 1712. He was formerly clerk to Simon Maine of Dinton, one of the judges who passed sentence on King Charles. He lived in Dinton, County Bucks, in a cave, had been a man of tolerable wealth, was looked upon as a pretty good scholar, and of no contemptible parts. Upon the restoration, he grew melancholy, betook himself to a recluse life and lived by charity, but never asked for anything but leather, which he would immediately nail to his clothes. And if you have a look at those shoes, actually, that's what the, the that's what I was wondering, what the, the shoe is actually strips of leather nailed together. I didn't know what the sort of little divity bumps are, but they're obviously nails. So he began to lead a, a close, he kept, he also kept three bottles that hung to his girdle for strong and small beer and milk. His shoes are still preserved. They are very large and made up of about a thousand patches of leather. One of them is in the Bodleian Repository. So from the Bodleian, this is Oxford's um, library. It obviously went into the Ashmolean Museum. The other in the collection of Sir John Van Hatton of Dinton who had his cave dug up some years since in hopes of discovering something relative to him, but without success. The print of him is done from a picture in the possession of Scroop Bernard Esquire of Nether Winchenden Bucks. Sometime since it was reported the celebrated Margravine of Anspach 
um, proffered to any person who would lead a recluse life, 500 pounds annuity for life after a period of seven years, during which time they were to have no converse or see mankind and suffer their hair and nails to grow untouched, they survived. But it does not appear anyone was desperate enough in circumstances to undergo the ordeal. It has been said a man endured this kind of life for four years and then gave up in despair. So there we are, the Dinton Hermit. There's solitude for you. And all is connected to a shoe. Very good. And this is all based on the idea of um, the belief that union with God is best attained by withdrawal from civilization. Yeah. Well, that this is, I mean, that is a monastic ideal. So a monastic, a, a monastic religious ideal is absolutely that. Um, and you can see, if you look at the history of Christianity, the history of Christianity sees throughout it, certainly throughout the sort of medieval period and even continuing today, you've got these sort of reclusive, very, very sort of um, sparse ascetic um, groups, monastic groups or individual sort of religious uh, hermits who take themselves away from society. So it's absolutely that. I think what we have in the hermits, though, is something much more secular. Um, so it, it's 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 less about religion and a communion a personal communion with god and it's more about their their own particular life's lifestyle isolation and solitude yes. the um uh i've come across this amazing book it's my new favorite book Ooh. i always get a, have a new favorite book is it james uh, daybell the, the material letter <laughs> <laughs> that is my second favourite book, because this is now my favourite book. Uh, it's called The Hermits and Anchorites of England by Rotha Mary Clay. Ooh. And it was published in 1914, yeah. um, very much of a antiquarian tradition, I would yes. say. Hmm. Um, and what she's done is travel around the country tracing the history of hermits. Hmm. And trying to find the evidence for them, taking photographs of places where hermits had been. And to demonstrate just how wonderful this book is, I'm not going to go through the entire thing, but I'm going to give you the chapter titles of them Ooh, to make you realise just how widespread hermits were in the UK. And there was sufficient evidence of them, even in 1914, to write this book. Island and fen recluses, forest and hillside hermits, cave dwellers, Light keepers on the sea coast, highway and bridge hermits, town hermits, anchorites in church and cloister, order and rule concerning the body, trial and temptation, human intercourse, prophets and counsellors, and literary recluses. Wonderful, wonderful thing. It gives you a sense of the, the sheer variety. Now, what I like about this particularly is that there is an appendix, and there's nothing better as a historian than, a, than an appendix. And in this appendix, James Daybell, yes, yes. there are lists and names of the recluses, the hermits, living in solitude in your county. Hmm. Devon. We both live in Exeter. Yes. Co Colliford. Colliton, you know where Colliton is? I do know where Colliton is. Right. The Chapel of St Calixtus. Hmm. Um, Beatrice of Colliford was a widow and she lived as a hermit there. Crediton. St Mary by the Chapel of St Lawrence. Um, Dodbrook in Kingsbridge, uh, the Chapel of Our Lady of Clanguil, brilliant. Exeter uh, in St. L oh, there's one connected with the cathedral. There's one in St. Leonard's Churchyard. There's one on Sidwell Street. 
There's one by St. John's Hospital, hmm. Holburton, Ottery, Pilton, Plymouth, Tavistock. There are three in Tavistock. It's a pretty dreary place to be a hermit. Two in Great Torrington. Wonderful. And um, would you like me to, to explore another county for you, James? I'd love you to. Uh, what about Yorkshire, Sam? Ooh, there we go. Anything okay. in Yorkshire? Uh, um, do, 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 yeah. Oh, <laughs> three pages worth. <laughs> give, me, give me the exciting highlights of Yorkshire hermits. I'm just going to read few, few, a few of the places where there were hermits in Yorkshire. Any in Hang on. Ainderby, Beeston, Beverley, Five in Beverley, Bolton, Bridlington, Burnston, Byland, Cadaby, Campsall, Conesborough, North Cave, Coverham. Uh, what did you say? Hornsey? Hornsey. H-O-R-N-S-E-A. There's one in Hampole, one in Harem, Haverar, Helor Park, Hedden, Helmsy, Hesse, Home, Hood, Howden and Huntingdon. Gosh. But but no, no, so you can uh, if you get this book and you can explore where all these people were living in solitude. It's a fantastic book. There are quotes. It's actually very historical. I think it might be a bit dismissive saying that it was in the tradition of antiquarianism. Well, there there's some... nothing wrong with antiquarianism. Okay. Love a bit of antiquarianism. There are quotes. There's evidence of them. There's physical evidence. There's. Uh, caves, places, um, images of caves, people, things cut into into hillsides. It's it's a truly fantastic book, but um, I've got into this because I was uh, interested, and I have been interested in this for some time actually, which is the the sort of the, the geography, or you know the material culture as well, but primarily the geography of solitude. Hmm. And I became interested in this when I was filming my series on. Um, highwaymen and rogues Ooh. and I went to the dungeons, the jail underneath York Castle mm. where Dick Turpin was uh, held captive when he was someone suspected that he was not the, the person that he was actually claiming to be. They found out who he was because he, he wrote a letter to his brother I think when he was in prison um, I love it because the walls are covered in graffiti Ooh. and we've do an episode, um, there's a chapter in our book on the unexpected history of graffiti. We've done a podcast episode on graffiti. It's fantastic. But a lot of graffiti is associated with people having a large amount of time on their hands. Hmm. And one of the clear examples of this is in prison. Hmm. Uh, I also came across wonderful examples in Bodmin Jail, where I was filming to do a little bit of a story for Jack Shepard, who was a, a young young uh, pickpocket and... and uh, regular escapee from jails and it, it's not necessarily you know people scratching one two three four and putting a line through it counting off the days although there are lots of wonderful examples in jails all over the world of people literally counting time in prisons there mm. are also wonderful examples of works of art mm. there are entire letters written on the walls and there's a really brilliant english heritage project going on at the moment at Richmond Castle. Uh, so Richmond, that's up in up in Yorkshire, I believe. And the cell block there was has been used a lot since the 19th century, but primarily um, for conscientious objectors during during the war. And there are some really splendid, splendid things here. Uh, mm. here's, here's a letter from J.J. Birchall. He's writing it in 19... He's a conscientious objector. He's held in the cells from May to July in 1916. 
came into this cell May the 30th, 1916, after spending many happy days inside, was released June the 14th, 1916, for 24 hours, confined to barracks, and much strengthened in my convictions and determined to stand firm. Now, as a, a window into history, a lot of people, being a professional historian, people come up to me and say, how do I get into it? How do I actually do it? How do I find something new? How do I find something that kind of gives me pleasure and helps me understand stuff. A lot of a lot of the public will get into history by doing family research because they've got a starting point. That's their starting point being their lives, their family's lives. So they want to know who they were related to, want to know basically from when they have come. But this graffiti is a great example of the way you can do it as well. So if, you, for example, you were visiting a castle or, or wherever it might be and you come across graffiti on the walls you can then use that as a starting point to investigate the history so you might investigate who this chap was in this cell you go and find letters that had actually been written to him that he'd sent elsewhere as well so not only is this a little window into solitude and and to how people wrote on the walls their actual techniques and also what they wanted to say but it's also a window into history itself you can then go and choose to investigate these people and there are just fabulous examples I'd really encourage you all to have a look at this um, it's on the English Heritage website and it's called the Cell Block Project they've got some fabulous photos a little video there of the graffiti from all of the cells and letters and a variety of different projects going on um, there are people there are dates it really is. It is. It is a tremendous thing. I shall go and check that out. That sounds excellent. And of course, um, prisons also bring us to solitary confinement. So where people are punished by being in strict isolation. But to go back to your your hermits that you were talking about, if you wished for something that was a little less antiquarian, I would recommend Gordon Campbell's The Hermit in the Garden from Imperial Rome to Ornamental Gnome. Uh, Gordon Campbell is the most fascinating scholar, uh, true gentleman. Um, and this book that came out with Oxford University Press a few years ago charts the history of the ornamental hermit all the way from Imperial stop, Rome. Stop. Let's explain what an ornamental hermit is. I don't know. We will come to that in a minute, Sam Willis. <laughs> so it traces the origins of of a hermit, somebody who um, lived as a recluse from the Roman Emperor Hadrian in the second century AD, all the way through to the eccentric phenomenon of the hermit in 18th century England, when highly fashionable individuals would have, um, would have a, a little sort of uh, area or hermitage built into their gardens where they would place an individual and this individual would be described uh, described by historians as an ornamental hermit in other words when you had your fashionable parties and gatherings at the weekend in your 18th century country house you would walk around the grounds and you would take your guests to go and have a look at the ornamental hermit it's a it's it's one step between there and ornamental garden gnomes, but this is literally real life people who lived in at the bottom of your garden, and there were there are descriptions from this period. There's in fact an advertisement placed in newspapers. There are advertisements placed in newspapers, um, and there's one in the an edition of the Courier 
dated the 11th of January, uh, 1810. And this is a would-be hermit who sought out a hermitage. And it reads... Applying for it. Applying, <laughs> applying for, for it. A, a young man <laughs> who wishes to retire from the world and live as a hermit in some convenient spot in England is willing to engage with any nobleman or gentleman who may be desirous of having one. Any letter addressed to S. Lawrence, postpaid, to be left at Mr. Otten's, number six, Coleman Lane, Plymouth, mentioning what gratuity will be given and all other particulars will be duly attended. Absolutely extraordinary, applying for a job as a hermit. And there are also... There are also qualifications. Detailed, <laughs> there are quite detailed descriptions. There's a superb description of the hermitage of Sir Richard Hill's Shropshire estate, Hawkstone, dated from 1784, which provides a very vivid picture of the resident hermit. This is a nonagenarian, Father Francis, who lived, we are told, in a well-designed little cottage, which is a hermit's summer residence. You pull a bell and gain admittance. The hermit is generally sit in a sitting position with a table before him on which is a skull, the emblem of mortality, an hourglass, a book and a pair of spectacles. The venerable barefooted father, whose name is Francis, if awake, always rises up at the approach of strangers. He seems about 90 years of age, yet has all his senses to admiration. He is tolerably conversant and far from being unpolite. So literally, you would have um, you'd have these hermits at the bottom of your garden that you could take your visitors to see. What do you I think mean, of that? Any any I mean, um, any any room for that in in Willis Mansions? <laughs> Not really, unless you're a size of a rabbit. <laughs> maybe you're the, the maybe you could be the hermit in your shed. Oh yeah, I it's a hermit. a hermit. We should rename it the Hermitage. I've got a question about this, though. Yes. Uh, did they look different to, to people who were within society? So did they have long hair and beards and or if they were... Uh, what's the female equivalent of having a long hair and a beard? Uh, <laughs> probably having long hair. Yeah. Long hair and unwashed and scruffy. Um, yeah, do you think... Did they did they adopt... I mean, so walking down the street... So you say your ornamental hermit went to the shops. Uh, <laughs> would you be able to identify that person as a hermit? So scruffy clothes... I mean, I'm fascinated by this. Um, only because... Um, there's a thing going around among teenagers at the moment. They're all shaving their hair. Are you aware of this? I'm not, no. Oh, right. Okay, so they've all got, you know, two months inside. They don't have to go to school. And so they're, they're dyeing their hair pink, blue, shaving it. One of my son's friends has shaved all his hair off and drawn in Sharpie a massive arrow on the top of his forehead. Gosh. Um, <laughs> but there is, there's a, there is a, you know, a, a thing going on about people changing their appearance in solitude. It's partly to do with it's something that you can control while events are out of your control. Yes. But um, it did make me wonder whether there is a, you know, a kind of a physical manifestation of this. There probably is. They're probably quite tramp-like figures. I don't imagine they're... They have easy access to hairdressers and barbers no. and, and people to shave are they, them. Are they, so they're not looked after by the person in whose garden they live? I wouldn't imagine so. Um, no. I imagine they're, they're pretty much on their own, uh, their own devices. I imagine, though, they would need to be fed. So I imagine food needs to be presented to them in some way. I don't imagine that they're out foraging uh, for their own food on the grounds. I imagine they're, they're, they're fed and, and they get... You know that the the advertisement that we saw there is an expectation that they will receive wages. Yeah, the um, 
what we're doing here is actually we are we've just opened a little door into the history of hermits because we are James and I just are are raising questions that we don't know the answer to that the answers to may not actually even exist in which case it would be a little window of research that someone can do this is something that James and I like doing with histories of the unexpected it's all about finding the gaps in the past and then going off and, and exploring them and, and getting answers but we, in, we should possibly this... read Professor Campbell's book more closely I'm sure it has all the examples <laughs> All the answers. This, li this links me to, to the next point, actually, because it's what I've found is an example of people doing the research into hermits. So I'm not going to talk about, about uh, necessarily what they found, but it's the process of doing it. Yes. Which I, I think is really, really interesting. And as a historian, it's what I find interesting because they are doing the same thing, except in this case, they're archaeologists. Hmm. Uh, do you know anything about Skellig Michael? I do. Yes. Loads. Oh, good. <laughs> Off you go then. So um, it's a, it is a it is a, it's the very definition of a craggy rock, huh. isn't it? Yes. It's a craggy rock off the coast of Derry in southwest Ireland. Yes. And uh, it was the site of a monastery from the ninth century Irish monasticism, and uh, in the sixties, it was explored by a group of archaeologists who were doing. A survey of the monastery. But while they were there, they started to explore the tops of one of the crags. And what they found was was really quite extraordinary. Um, I'm going to send you a photograph, James. I have Hang it. On. How do you know which one I'm sending you? I have the... <laughs> Hang I on, James. Hang on. What were you going to say? Path to Christ's saddle. No, no, you definitely won't have seen this. <laughs> um, James, I've just sent you a photograph of one of the peaky crags on Skellig Michael. If you um, if you can't imagine this in your head, it being a, a craggy rock and off the southwestern Irish coast, you've probably seen it if you've seen Star Wars, if you've seen the last two Star Warses, because it's in that film. Oh, I haven't have you got seen that them. <laughs> have no. you, um, have you got, is that photo come through? Ah, you? got it. Yes. Wow. Right. <laughs> Can you describe what you're looking at there? Uh, at a rocky crag. Is this the bit where where uh, a rather elderly uh, Luke Skywalker is on a rock? Yes. I have seen that exactly. film. Can, yes. can, can you see the little arrow at the top of the rocky crag? I can. Yeah. So it is, it is a, a comedy pointy mountain rock. And at the very, very, very top is a tiny black arrow, which is where they found the archaeological evidence of a hermitage. Mm. And it's really interesting because it was a massive physical challenge to get there. Hmm. Um, no one knew about it, so they had to do it. And um, let me just read a bit about this, this archaeological report, because it's the most exciting archaeological report I've ever read. Hmm. So this is from the published report, The Forgotten Hermitage of Skellig Michael by Walter Horne, Jenny White Marshall, Grellen D. Rourke from the University of Carolina Press, uh, 1990. In the course of our field work on Skellig Michael, we noticed architectural remains on various ledges high up on the south peak of the island. After a thorough physical examination, we could interpret these remains only as the surviving parts of an early Irish hermitage. We believe this hermitage was founded in the 9th century by a monk of the monastery of Skellig Michael, to whom even a religious settlement that accommodated no more than 12 monks and an abbot was too great a barrier between himself and God. So I love this idea. So there's a monk there and he's got maybe 11 other monk colleagues and an abbot and it's all too much and he needs to remove himself. 
The investigation of the South Peak was physically our most hazardous undertaking on Skellig Michael. The peak is a conical tusk of rock whose sides slide away into the ocean with frightening steepness. Its surface is scarred by short, narrow, disconnected bedrock ledges above vertical cliffs. To photograph it called first for acrobatic skills and finally for the use of aircraft, including helicopters. Our success in studying Skellig Michael depended on the dedicated and gracious assistance of so many people, including the Kerry Mountain Rescue Team. <laughs> Here we are. Uh, fortunately, during the nine days of the survey, there was no rain, which would make any work on the peak impossible. The weather was frequently cold, with winds of up to force seven, which is near gale force. The site itself made progress arduous and slow, for the table had to be set up at nine different locations, sometimes in treacherous areas where there was no room to manoeuvre. Ropes were required as well as great concentration. A full step could have been fatal. At the end, when the nine drawings fit nearly together, the sense of satisfaction at the accomplishment of a unique survey was enormous. It was not, however, an experience that anyone was eager to repeat. <laughs> Brilliant. Mm. Um, so, yes, the, you know, just cast our minds back. You can, of course, you see, you can write the history of people discovering the history of hermits. Yes. And you can also write there. I mean, you're talking there about, you know, these sort of uh, very isolated, rocky islands. And you can write a history about living on on isolated rocky islands and while you were talking about that uh, I was thinking about a couple of books that I've read in the last couple of years um, or one r rather more recent than the other but I was thinking about The Sea Room by Adam Nicholson uh, which is about this group of islands called the Shiants and they're sort of similar similar area off the off the coast of um, the west coast of um, Scotland and he basically inherits them on his 21st birthday and they are, you know, three rocky sort of crops um, of, of island and he goes and lives on them for a bit and it's basically like a little hut and then he writes the most detailed sort of um, total history of this, of this island that he's, that he's inherited. Um, and goes back and looks at all the folklore and the fauna and the geology of it. Um, but at the heart of it is the sense of them being occupied and the kinds of people who lived on them and farmed them and the and the the life that they would have had. The other book that I've read is a book called um, Where the World Ends, uh, which which is a, a children's uh, book. Um, which is an absolutely fantastic uh, novel uh, by a woman called uh, Geraldine McCorgreen. Um and it's about this it's about um, this sort of time on St the St Kilda stacks in the summer of 1727 and a group of men and boys basically go to this uh, remote island to find food um they're it's basically populated with seabirds and they go there and they harvest the birds for food and what happens is they get dumped off there they're awaiting for a boat to come back and the boat never comes back so they basically spend an entire year on this island in complete solitude yes they are there together but they are separated from the rest of society 
and the fact that the boat doesn't come back they a boat eventually comes back and finds them but basically they find out that when they go back to their 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 larger island where their families are the reason that people haven't come is that a disease has broken out on the island and most people have been killed uh, but it's an extraordinary sort of um fi sort of historical fictional it's a sort of fictional account of a historical event about living on one of these islands and islands around the world you know people would have lived in in very much in solitude. Yeah, and not just islands. It makes me think about early the history of um, early colonies. So Jamestown. Yes, um, yes, well, absolutely. Know, the, the, the early early colonial empire stretching around the world with people really, really living in extreme isolation. Well, that's been very enjoyable. I want to just uh, leave everyone with a bit of homework. If you want to look, we've talked about all sorts of different types of solitude and isolation, but um, I think a fascinating example of it is this theme, we talked about it with loneliness, didn't we, James, about people being lonely in a crowd and a lot of us feeling yes. isolated and alone. Um, and the best portrait of this is a painting called Night Hawks by the American artist Edward Hopper, uh, 1940s. Mm. It's, uh, it's a wonderful image of a diner at night where the viewer is separated by the glass. Uh, there are people inside not looking at each other, not really engaging with each other. It's a it's an image that makes you question whether you're the lonely one looking in because you're not part of the gang or they're lonely because they're inside. It's um, It really captures urban loneliness of the 1940s beautifully and it's uh, one of my favourite paintings. Yeah. So, and the other things that we haven't had a chance to talk about are shipwrecks. Uh, so we could think about Robinson Crusoe. So you should all go off and read Robinson Crusoe and the real life Robinson Crusoe, uh, the, or the, the sort of somebody who was the sort of inspiration for it, Alexander Selkirk, uh, who was dumped on a on a desert island and lived on the island, and of course uh, the invention, the, the 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 finding of the history of loneliness by the Beatles <laughs> in their song Eleanor Rigby. Oh, look at all the lonely people. Eleanor Rigby picks up the rice in the church where the wedding has been, lives in a dream, waits at the window, wearing that face that she keeps in a jar by the door. Who is it for? All the lonely people. Where do they all come from? All the lonely people. Where do they all belong? As you can see, I'm a, I'm a real muso. That was brilliant. Uh Ladies and gentlemen, I hope you've enjoyed that. I've really enjoyed those, loneliness and solitude. They're very yeah. good, weren't um, they? Do please leave us a review on iTunes. I know we bang on about it, but it really makes an enormous difference, a surprisingly big difference. And please, please, if you've got any money spare, follow us on patreon.com forward slash histories of the unexpected. James and I are not earning any money. We're not out on the roads. We're not doing, doing our usual stuff, meeting everyone. So anything you can do to help us as we carry on our podcast series would be gratefully appreciated. Thank you all very much. You can follow me on Twitter at Dr. Sam Willis. And you can follow me at James Daybell and you can follow the histories of the unexpected Twitter feed on at unexpected pod. And you can follow all the things that we are doing on historiesoftheunexpected.com. Fabulous. Thanks a lot, guys. And um, we'll have something else coming your way soon. Bye. Stay safe, guys. Bye. <laughs>